So this is a, a podcast with the Gen MP in collaboration with the Association of British Neurologists. My name is Ralph Gregory and I'm a consultant neurologist from uh, Dorset in the UK. And I have with me today uh, Professor Nick Wood uh, from the Institute of Neurology. So uh, welcome Nick and thanks for doing this. No problem. Uh, we're going to have a chat today about uh, what the challenges are in, uh, in neurogenetics. So what are, the, what are the important areas as you see it at the moment? I think the major thing that's happened in the last two or three years is the huge impact of uh, what's called next generation sequencing. What that really means is our ability to sequence a lot of DNA very robustly and very cheaply. And that continues apace. And so that means that we are, A, going to find more genes much more quickly, and also, one hopes, roll that out into clinical service in in a very short time frame, which will make gene tests more widely available and a lot more cost effective. So uh, apart from uh, you know, helping clinicians to do tests more cheaply and more easily, uh, what other advantages might this bring to our understanding of disease? Well, it's estimated that there's 7,000 rare diseases generally in, in the human system. Uh, and 3,500 have been found, and there's 3,500 to find. This 3,500 that have been found has taken the last 20 years, pretty much, since the first 20, 25 years. But it's estimated we'll find the remaining ones in the next two, three, four years, that sort of time frame. And the government's announced quite a big funding push on that. So I could foresee that we'll get finding a lot of those genes very quickly. It turns out, of course, not surprisingly, given the complexity of the nervous system, that an awful lot of those have a neurological component, be it muscle or spinal cord or cognitive. And so I think for the practicing neurologists, it is impossible to ignore these changes because we will be seeing these patients rare though they are that will come through our clinic and so we'll be using diagnostics and dna diagnostics in the way that we think about scans i would predict in the near future but we we um we often sort of think of find the gene uh, find out what the, what the protein does and uh, for that gene and then see what effect that has on the disease is is that the way you, these things are moving forward well one of the interesting things that's happened in the pharma industry in the last few years, maybe two, three years, is they've got more interested in rare diseases as well. And I think it's exactly for that reason that complex though it is, the molecular event that gives rise to disease is at least tractable because it's one protein abnormality that gives rise to Huntington's disease or whatever. And so that simpler framework gives them, they believe, a better chance of getting some traction on that disease rather than going for, you know, diabetes or cancer or Alzheimer's disease, which we know is going to be complex. And so for the first time in certainly my time of practicing, there's more hope and aspiration for if you've got a rare disease that the government interested in it, pharma interested in it, and I think uh, it benefits uh, the patients as well as uh, neurology. Okay, so could you give us an example of uh, the sort of disease process you mean and, and what changes this has made already? So let's take Parkinson's, which is one of the areas that uh, my department and lab uh, research quite a lot into. Fifteen years ago, we knew very little about Parkinson's disease. We suspected it was something in the environment. I'm sure there is something in the environment. I don't know what it is still. But the genetic story was almost non-existent. There were two or three reported families. Now, I don't know what the latest list is of Parkinson's genes, but it's over ten. Uh, and there's emerging pathways from that. So one of the major pathways that's come out in the last, say, four or five years is the mitochondrial pathway. And it's now really very clear that three of the main autosomal recessive genes causing Parkinson's disease align the same pathway. Now, that's interesting enough for us as neurologists and people interested in Parkinson's disease, but it turns out, even if you're interested in mitochondrial biology, you're interested in these proteins because they are signals and uh, they're involved in signaling cascades that regulate the quality control turnover of the mitochondria. And so a lot of people are now getting very focused on that. Now, 
the next leap or the next step, of course, is can we do something about that and can we reverse the changes or slow the changes? And that's where the action is. And I think, you know, over the next 10, 20 years in, neuro in neurological practice, we will see molecules that will be developed based on biological pathway discovery that will have been at least primarily driven initially by genetic discovery. And then we'll build networks that we'll understand or try and understand that we can then drug and alter in some way. When I was at medical school, um, I was told that if you had amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, uh, there was no risk of inheritance and you weren't going to dement. Um, yes. We've, uh, that's changed a bit. So yeah, tell me about that. that was, um, we were missold on that story, I think it's fair to say, a bit like uh, payment protection insurance. I mean, in all seriousness, it's quite clear now that there's significant overlap between an ALS disease and frontotemporal dementia. And the reason we know that is from genetic discoveries. So if we think of uh, the major proteins or genes involved in ALS, and we've got proteins, things like called TDP43 or FUS, and the most recent gene found is one called C9ORF72. Uh, we don't know quite what that does yet. And these are all involved both in ALS and frontotemporal dementia, such that about 6, 7, 8% of ALS, sporadic ALS, is explained by this mutation C9ORF and about the same proportion in frontotemporal dementia. So there's clearly an overlap in the pathologies, an overlap in the genetic causation. And that gives hope that, of course, the two fields combining might stand a better chance of solving the disease. Um, and so what changes have, has this made to your clinical practice? At the moment, the, the changes are relatively subtle, I suspect, that, in, that uh, you have to think a bit more in a sophisticated fashion about taking the family history. So if you ask somebody with ALS, for example, to pursue the same line, say, uh, do you have any family members with ALS? They may say no. But if you say to anybody with behavioural problems, end up in a mental institution, dementia, you might well pick up a family history that was submerged and, and was given over some other diagnosis. And so we have to think a bit lighter on our feet about how we think about syndromes as being familial or non-familial. Uh, and then we've got to think a bit more uh, sophisticatedly about how we inform patients because not all these genes that have been found are fully penetrant, by which I mean, you can carry the mutation but not get the disease. And that is complex enough for us as medics to understand, but it's, it's a you know, order of magnitude perhaps to explain that in an understandable way to patients and their families that you're telling them they've got a 50% chance of getting the gene but not a 50% chance of manifesting the disease and it's not a treatable disease. And so those sort of counselling steps need a little bit of careful thought. What I hope will happen in the near future is that we'll be able to diagnose people much more accurately, much more rapidly, and so we'll, there'll be a real cost-saving in terms of their time, and instead of taking two or three years to make a diagnosis, we get to a, a clear molecular diagnosis within a matter of months for many diseases with these panels of genes that we can sequence. So um, uh, you began by talking about the sort of practical implications. What, what sort of time frame do you see? I mean, when do you think these sort of cheaper chips are going to be available so i think what's going to happen in the uk and i'm not sure how, how other countries are dealing with it i think there'll be several phases so if you think of the decreasing dna costs in research terms it's been amazing so for example about 10 12 years ago it cost about eight thousand dollars to sequence a million base pairs it now costs less than eight cents to sequence a million base pairs, so it's you know orders of magnitude less. Now that hasn't yet translated into much cheaper genetic testing. The reason for that is the way we do diagnostic testing and the scrutiny and the clinical science input to qualify that result. But I think pretty soon you'll see 
that translating. And I think what will happen first is we'll have panels. So I think we'll have a dementia panel, and then we'll have a Parkinson's panel, and we'll have an ataxia panel, and you'll get a full readout of all the known genes. But that's an interim step. I don't think that will last more than two or three years, because pretty soon, beyond that, we're going to have whole exome, which means all the coding exons in all the genome uh, done. And that can be done in research. That's quite cheap in research. For example, it's about £500 currently in research terms, and that wouldn't be that cheap to do diagnostically because of all the additional quality control steps. But it's, it's still manageable. So the question is, why aren't we doing that yet for diagnostics? I think you, what you pay for there is a huge price in analytical uh, analysis because you go into a much bigger genetic space to work out what's going on. Also, you find a whole bunch of things you weren't expecting, and what, how do you handle that news? So that needs a little bit of thinking through. In societal terms, what do you do if you find a BRCA1 mutation in somebody you were sequencing for presenilin 1 and so on? Um, and then beyond all that, you've got a whole genome. As we all know, the first genome took about 10 or 12 years, cost about $3 billion, so a dollar a base pair, and now it's coming down. You can probably get a genome for under $2,000, $3,000, that sort of level at the moment, and so it's coming down massively. And there, the, the analytical space is even bigger. So I think over the next three, four, five years, you'll see these things coming in. Panels first, exomes, then genomes maybe by five years. Well, on behalf of the uh, ABN and the JNMP, I'd like to thank you very much, Nick. I certainly enjoyed uh, very much talking to you and uh, look forward to uh, hearing what's going to be coming up over the next couple of years. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.